This morning, turn to Mark chapter 6. And again, I would say this, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of the pew Bibles, that's fine, in the back, or there's actually some a uh, little bit nicer ones that are out in the foyer there. So if you don't own a Bible, you can sure take one with you and feel free to keep it and, and mark it up. And, and one of the things that I encourage, even though I put verses on the screen here, um, you might want to read along in your, even though it's a different version, I would encourage you to do that. In, in part, it gets you familiar with your Bible. And we want to encourage that for you to just be digging in there and allowing God to speak to you through his word. But this morning, we come to Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read the text for us this morning. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he watched that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for, all they, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now this morning, I was tempted to actually bring out our baptismal tank and, and put a couple feet of water on it and invite a couple of you to come up and demonstrate what it's like to walk on water. And then we could watch you sink as you try to do that, and then we would, we would declare that you are no longer a god. And, but I don't know if anybody would have taken me up on that this morning. But now some of you are going, Ken, last weekend we walked on water when we did the ice fishing thing. And uh, my comment to you is, wait till summer months and then try it. And then we will be impressed in that sense. But this, mor- this story uh, this morning is one that you have, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it, you understand you've been taught it over the years. And But the challenge is, miracles at times are a bit tricky when you teach them. Because one of the things that can happen, and especially with kids, is that we get enamored with the miracle itself and never stop and ask the question, why did he perform the miracle? See, why always points to a a purpose behind what he was doing. Jesus was very intentional, even with the miracles. But this story builds on last week's sermon as Scott talked about the feeding of the 5,000. Here Jesus dismisses this crowd, and again, that could have been up to 20,000 people, but he insists that his disciples get in the boat, you go across ahead, ahead of me, and they start rowing during that early evening. But then look at verse 46, what Jesus was about here. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now here's where we can stop and ask, why? Why the need for Jesus to go up on the mountain and spend time with his father? Now understand, Scripture doesn't point here directly to the reason, but I think there are, when you ponder it, a couple reasons as to why. One of them, he's peopled out. 
When you, have you ever had days where you spend a lot of time with people and, and you want to just get away from people and go, oh, I need a little bit of rest and rejuvenation? But even here, we see what rejuvenation with Jesus, what it's all about. When he looks to rejuvenate, he ends up spending time with his father. And I think that's a challenge for us. He didn't choose the easy chair. He didn't choose to watch some sporting event on TV. He didn't choose to go to the YMCA to get an adrenaline rush. He spends time with his father. But there is potentially a second reason why he withdraws as well. It's not in our story here, but it actually comes into the parallel text from John chapter 6. And let me put that on the screen. This was immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. When people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, the crowd here were looking to force Jesus to become king and overthrow the hated Romans. They knew something special was going on here. But I think maybe this is a, poss- a real possibility. There was a temptation that was thrown at Jesus, that was being offered to him in this sense of wanting to to become king. But if that was the case, you understand, even there, the response of Jesus to resist temptation was not to just go and do something. He ended up going spending time with his father because he knew he needed to accomplish the mission of the cross. Now, I don't have an application. I probably could have put it in your notes. But think of it this way. When we get tired, when temptation comes to us, what is the tendency in our lives? Is it to get distracted or is it to draw away and spend time with the Father? I think it's a great principle for us and to examine our own lives in this way. But there is another reality here this morning that i got to point out. And if you're following along in the sermon outline, I said this. An encounter with Jesus always demands a response. Folks, when people encounter Jesus, there's always a reaction, a response to him. The 5,000 that got fed, let's make him king. Let's, let, he, we need to be set free. Let's raise him up. He's got power. But think of some of the other responses that we've talked about in weeks past. The demons, when they encounter Jesus. Don't send me away, Jesus. But, so he sends them into the pegs. There was a fear there. A couple of weeks ago for Herod, a response there. Herod's reaction, fear, and to some degree some intrigue. But catch this, even in this room today, you're going to respond to the text in some form and ultimately Jesus. Everyone has to respond to Christ. And the question, will Jesus threaten you today? Will that be the response? Will the response be kind of indifference and go, you know what, I'm just going to sleep on this one? Ignore him? Or, Or maybe it's 
fear, or for some people it could be hatred because something in the past that God hasn't come through for you? Will it be awe? Will it be worship? You see, when Jesus comes along, no one can remain neutral. When one encounters the Christ, when response is always demanded. And even in our text today, it, that's true as well. But look at more in the text. Look at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass them by. Now John 6 tells us the distance they were about halfway out in the middle of the lake, which would have been about three miles out. And the time we see in the text is the fourth watch, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So normally, what they tell us is that with that size of lake, it would take about four hours to row from where they started to where they were headed. But they had been going somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine hours of rowing. Probably gaining a little bit, floating back. Now here's where I've got to give you an observation here. It's kind of subtle, but I'd say it like this. Isn't Jesus just a little late here? They've been rowing for eight to nine hours. Why didn't he come earlier? Matter of fact, if only Jesus wouldn't have insisted that we get in the boat alone and go alone. See, isn't it isn't he a little late? Now, if you stop and ponder that, that is actually true of many circumstances within the Bible with Jesus. A few weeks back, we talked about this girl, little girl who had died. And remember the response when, when Jesus finally gets to the home, don't bother Jesus, you're too late. You're too late. But let me give you an application out of that. It's one that at times I don't think we really like. But the first one there, if you're taking notes, I said this, God's timing is always perfect. And that takes faith to believe that sometimes. See, when our life is not going as planned and we pray and we plead, but the emphasis at times is dictated on our timeline. So the results, you think of circumstances, the doctor's tests you're not sure about, or kids that aren't walking with Christ, or relationships that don't heal. Folks, the hardest thing for us in this world is to be in the middle of a storm of life and to keep rowing and waiting and going, God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to show up? But there's something here that we must understand. Timing and intervention is on God's terms. And we see that even in the text this morning. Jesus was waiting to come to them in the boat for a reason. For a reason. He had a purpose behind it. But look at verse 52. We see a hint to this. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They're saying something was going by these guys that they weren't catching. 
The disciples were continuously spending time with Jesus. They were listening to his teaching. They were seeing the kingdom work that he was doing. And yet somehow there was large gaps in their understanding of who he was. There was gaps. But do we not have to admit that that's a danger that we could have as well, that we could face? You see, catch this like the disciples. There's a way to be around the spiritual world, be around Jesus, the church, even the Bible and community groups and students. You can be around your youth group and your parents' faith. And somehow people miss what's most important. Sometimes we look at what he's doing, but we forget the the best thing, and that's Jesus himself. Look at the end of 48, though. Keep going here. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And look at this. They cried out. They screamed. Now, there's a second application here that this passage is pushing us toward, and it really is the key meaning of the text. Number two, I said it this way, the Jesus of the Bible wanted to reveal his divinity, his divine nature, his authority to the disciples, but folks, through the words of the scriptures to us as well. It's for us as well. But think about this sight. In the middle of a lake, it's dark, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and all of a sudden they see this figure in the distance coming, walking on the water, and you go, I I would have been concerned. But, But catch, again, the disciples, they had just seen Jesus take bread, break them, and just multiply that food. But see, people, the disciples understood that he was breaking bread, but they never really realized that he was the bread of life. See, there was a gap in their understanding. They never understood that as he was breaking the bread, it was symbolic of him being broken. So spiritual hunger could be satisfied. They understood that Jesus had power, but they didn't understand that he was the power. I think they understood this, that he was from God, But I'm not convinced that they understood that he was God. So he comes walking on the water. And again, if that was me, I'd have the same reaction. Now, i got to say something here, because what people do in our day and age to discredit this idea of this miracle, they want to go, well, he was walking on a sandbar. And that's how they kind of get around this. But if you remember, this is the same incident that... Matthew records where Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on the water toward Jesus. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and what does he do? He begins to sink and almost drowns. But the question, who can walk on water and then climb into a boat, and in a millisecond, the storm stops. The winds cease and the waves, it's flat. See, who has control over nature? Who has control over the molecules that make up water and can walk on them? Now, I'd remind you as well, again, think of the circumstances of the disciples. Previously, Jesus had been in a boat during a storm, sleeping, if you remember that, 
We spoke on that a few uh, months or so ago. And it says that he woke up and he rebuked. He said, wind shut up. And it was still. But even at that time, they didn't get it. Matter of fact, they, they put a question. A question was delivered in John, er, Mark chapter 4. Let me put it on the screen. It's the title of our series here. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Folks, this story today answers this question. In this incident, he was revealing that he was God. Now, i got to pause and come back to our, our day. If you listen to people closely, there's a lot of people in this world who have a problem who says Jesus is God. The Mormon faith says Jesus was born from God and he's a brother of Satan. Other groups say that he, he's just, he's not God, he's not the same as the Father, they don't believe in the Trinity. For most people, they don't even care. But folks, here Jesus is saying he is God and the world says, well, he's just a good prophet, he's just a good man that leaves us as an example to try harder to love people. And I, what you can actually listen toward from people is people who claim to be Christian, they don't really care that Jesus equals God. And, but the question, I think, if Jesus is really God, shouldn't that make a difference in our response to him? See, the statement I made earlier, everyone has a response to Jesus. Who is this man this morning, Jesus? If you're 13 or 30 or 65, do you care that he's claiming to be God himself? Or are you just trying to ignore Jesus? See, for the disciples, Jesus needed to be more than being from God. He intersects at this point in the middle of the night to declare that he is God. Let me keep going in the text. And notice some things that I underlined. Look at verse end of uh, 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now here's where there's a third application for today. Number three, Jesus came so that God would reveal his own glory, his greatness, his character, and as important is that he cares about us. God cares about us. But think of some of the words that describe God. Sovereign, holy, just, glorious, he's transcendent, he's the sovereign creator of the universe. And yet God chooses to reveal himself in his Son so that we can know him. And he reveals himself through his Son so that we can be certain that he cares for you and me. He cares for us. That's one of the pieces to the story. Look at the end of verse 46. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And he go, doesn't this sound just a little bit odd? Like Jesus is going to, they're, they're in the boat and it's easy for him because he can walk on the water. Wind's not bothering him and they're rowing really hard and he's just going to, zoom. he's going to go right by them. What do we do with that? You know, maybe he was, maybe one of the reasons he did this, he's just out for a stroll on the water. A little exercise that morning. Sees the guys in the boat struggling. Hey guys, I hope you have some snacks with you. It's going to take a while. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that's the right way to look at it. See, there's another view in terms of understanding what it means to pass by them. And the, and the view is this, is so that they can see him. He's passing by so they can see him. Um, my wife, when she was younger, worked at an old-fashioned drive-in in Cocado. And it's the kind that you would call up from the phone, and then they didn't have roller skates back then, but they would, you know, she was one that would bring the food to the car, hook it on the window, if you remember that type of a, a drive-in. But on that one particular time when I was there, it was kind of the hangout, and this one only the hangout in Cocado that we actually had. And, and one, of the guys, one night, I think it was a Saturday night, early evening, and there was a guy, his name was Steve Sanima. And Steve had one of these jacked-up cars with mufflers you know, that rumbled all the time. And what he ended up doing is he took that car, and at about five miles an hour or so, he just kept circling the drive-in over and over and over again. And what he was trying to do was to annoy the owner. <laughs> and, and just over, he probably circled the things 50 times until the owner came out and shooed him off. But what was he doing? He was trying to get the owner to notice him. He was passing by that front window over and over to get noticed. Folks, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing himself to his disciples. And you've got to catch this. That there's a phrasing here. We don't really see it in the English, but it's a very similar phrasing to that which took place a couple of times in the Old Testament. And it took place with Elijah, and it took place with Moses. And let me show you the encounter of Moses here and from Exodus 33 to make the connection here. Moses was having a meeting with God and God had found favor with him and he knew him by name. And, and then Moses makes this astonishing request. In verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God responds and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God responds, my goodness is going to pass in front of you, by you. 
these words in Mark are almost identical in its understanding. See, Moses saw God in all his glory, but he, and he couldn't actually look at God in the face or he would die. See, this text is a parallel understanding of what's going on. But there's a second thing going on here with Moses. When God proclaims, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. It, it's Yahweh. You understand they couldn't utter that name, but really what it is, it means this, I am. I am. God referring to himself. And look, let me show you verse 50 in our text this morning. For, for they all saw him and were terrified, but he immediately he cries out, tells them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That phrase, it is I, literally in the Greek says, I am. I am. He was teaching them that he was God and that I am. Jesus was walking on the water not just to show himself only, but he was letting his goodness, his divine glory, pass by the disciples just like he did Moses. And he proclaims, I am. Now what's so critical here, though, through Jesus, God has come close to us. And it's a little bit different, but understand that he's not a distant God. Through Jesus, he's close to us. We don't, matter of fact, we have an advantage. We don't have to hide in a cave as he reveals himself to us. See, when you look at what God does for Moses in Exodus, and you look at the examples of Mark, some are very similar, but there's also some differences. And let me just give you a couple. I don't have them for your notes, but one of them is this. Moses was at a very different place in his relationship with with God than the disciples were with even with Jesus and God. Do you realize that Moses would have been deemed a spiritual giant when God revealed himself to him? But when God, when Jesus revealed himself as God to the disciples, folks, they weren't spiritual giants. They weren't even close to where Moses was at spirit was where, where he was spiritually. And you go, isn't this good news for us? See, I think too often we think that God is willing to come near to us when we're living just the right kind of faith. When we're living in perfect obedience, when we spend time in the Word every day, that's when God comes to us. But the truth here is, is that He comes when life is dark. And life is filled with struggles. And he comes when we have a weak faith and when our lives are spiritually inadequate. See, none of those things in our lives interfere with God coming to us. Now, I, I think at times we block because of things going to God. But it doesn't stop God. And if you have put your faith in, in him, this truth needs to be profound and deeply personal in your soul that nothing can block God's love, even our own sin. We can't block it. 
Matter of fact, as I was thinking last night, I came, I just, Romans 8 came to my mind and I threw it in here. Look how it reads, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the reality is is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if you know him as Lord and Savior, he will walk on water to come and meet you. And he does this to show that there is no barrier, no amount of shame or sin that will separate you from his love. God has come close to us when we are in Christ. And that is an amazing truth. Now, another twist to this story, though, is this idea that Jesus climbed in the boat. The divine God was willing to walk on water and he steps over on the edge of that boat and he gets in the boat with a group of men that still had hard hearts. But do you realize the purity of that grace when he gets into the boat? And think of the glorious words as he's walking on that water, approaching the boat. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. See, do you realize that the disciples actually got a greater look into the heart of God than Moses or Elijah? Moses actually only had a partial view and understanding of God. They actually had a better understanding, a better view of God than even Moses. See, but no matter how hard life gets or what you're struggling with, Jesus has walked on the water for you. He has crossed an impossible barrier of God becoming man. And now he is no longer separated from us. He is a perfect high priest. It says that he's interceding for us. Folks, Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us. I want to invite the worship team. And as they come up, let me just add one piece here. Mark doesn't give the picture of the next day. You actually read that in John chapter 6. But when Jesus and his disciples came to the shore, the people that had been fed, a bunch of them had gone around to the other side and they were waiting for Jesus. 
And Jesus tells something that was very difficult. He says this. These are the people that have been fed. He says, you didn't come seeking me because of who I am. You came because of what I gave you and what I could do for you. And he tells them, this group of people, that if they really want to follow me, that they have to believe and know that he is the true bread of heaven. And he makes this statement here, unless you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, you can have no part of him. And it was on that day, and this is the incredible piece, another piece that you just kind of shake your head, is on that day, the next day, that many who claim to be disciples of Jesus, they walked away. They walked away. But for day, today, see, there are people who see Jesus walking on the water, maybe in this room, and yet you refuse to invite him into your boat. See, people, even today, and maybe some here, you want him for what he can give you. See, some people maybe even today aren't interested in in Jesus being the bread of life himself. So the question as we close, what's your response to Jesus today? Have you really, truly invited him into the boat Or is your response to turn away and just forget? You walk out these doors and you go, doesn't matter. Whatever, Jesus, you're a nice guy. But if you know him, should not our response be to bow our knees and worship him and give him our love and to allow him even to care for us? We invite him into the boat. We want to sing one song, a response. It's called Holy Spirit. It's really an invitation song. And yeah, it's kind of spoke corporately, but here's what I'd like you to do. When you sing it, would you personalize it in your soul? Would would you turn your hearts toward him and invite Jesus into your boat fully? Fully. He wants to meet us.